well, our initial approach is to improve the ability to diff your hardware designs. We hear from engineers that it's really tricky to see what has changed between version 1 and version 2. We're improving the design and, and developer experience for those hardware engineers. That's Jackson Delahunt from STEM.com speaking about open sourcing hardware on this episode of SpecsCast. Welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and on this episode, uh, my co-host TJ and I interview Jackson Delahunt, the CEO and co-founder of STEM.com. Just a heads up, the audio is a little bit on the lower quality side for this one, uh, but we think you'll enjoy the conversation. Thanks. I'm Phil, and joining me today, we have TJ. Hello. And Jackson Delahunt. He's the co-founder and CEO of STEM. Um, So first things first, uh, can you introduce yourself and tell us uh, all about your company? Sure. Uh, So as you said, co-founder and CEO of STEM. So I've been working with my business partner on STEM for the last 20 months now. And we've been able to reach out to approximately 5,000 aerospace engineers and space engineers around the world uh, to try and facilitate better collaboration and work in the science, technology, engineering and maths fields. But we started with a niche. We started with aerospace uh, to try and gain some traction in a small field and it's gone really well so far. It's been a lot of groundwork reaching out to people and you doing the same with your podcast. So this is very familiar to what I've been going through over the last almost two years now. Thanks for having me, by the way. Glad to be able to be out and spreading the word. Sure. This is really exciting for us too. So, you know, let's start from the beginning. How did you get involved in the space community to begin with? So my co-founder is an aerospace and space mechanical space engineer, uh, and he's had a deep fascination with space since he was a kid. Uh, when we founded the business, there was also another co-founder, and he was in aerospace as well. So we had some domain expertise there. We had good networks, which we could leverage early on to get our first users. And just on principle, space is also the field that is the convergence of all of the other sciences and engineering fields. If you want to do anything in space, you need to have an exceptional array of skills from material sciences through to physics and uh, every kind of engineering, basically, if you want to succeed. So we felt we would go and tackle the hardest problem first and pick the, the field which really needed the most help to you know, get us to the ultimate goal of reaching Mars or you know, deep space exploration. So we picked the space engineering fields and it's been great so far because there's some early kind of standardization happening with respect to CubeSats and we're kind of seeing that uh, be pushed a little further as people are becoming more aware of the standards and designing to the same spec and so far I think we've had a micro impact on that but in the future we hope to have a much larger impact. And we, we thank you as members of the, the space community and people starting projects like these. First things first, what is STEM? Like if, if I have never heard of it before, and for the listeners who are not aware of it at all, can you describe uh, STEM for us? Uh, basically, we founded STEM to reduce the enormous amount of redundant work that is being done in engineering. Uh, we know that people are not sharing the work that they're doing, which causes people to reinvent the wheel time and time again, to start from scratch, and to hit those same stumbling blocks that like make projects so hard to get off the ground over and over again. They don't have a, a platform of, of success from which to build upon and just make that incremental difference. They're really just starting from scratch each time. And, and we see that as one of the biggest hindrances to advancing engineering, whether you're at the engi- uh, hobbyist level, university, if you're in industry, um, if people were sharing and, and reusing designs, there would be such an incredible amount of time saved and, and people would not make those mistakes and, and have a higher success rate for their projects. And that's why we founded it. And then Space was a natural starter, small niche, um, very passionate people in the field. And the two have kind of worked well together. And particularly in Space, because we know it's such a, a hard goal to achieve, people are more open to sharing their work, which is one of the 
early things you have to overcome with people. Oh, should I keep this private or should I share this? And people in space generally want to share because they know it's a kind of a smaller field and they seem to band together a lot more because of that. Oh, by the way, I should say, I don't have a, a space background myself. I've come into it from the computer science world, building the, the cloud infrastructure that backs the website. But I've learned a huge amount about the field subsequently and spoken with many startups in the field. And I've, through this business, derived my love of space as well. So I'm there with you. Your, your website is spelled STEM, S-T-E-M-N. Uh, is that correct to just say STEM like you would use without the N? Or you have your own pronunciation for it? No, I'm glad you guys nailed it first time. Uh, it's tricky being a silent N. People are like, do I pronounce it? Do I not say it? Yeah, we're STEM. So currently your site is, you know, it's a little bit between a social network and a job site, kind of like LinkedIn, uh, with the main mm. feature being the project pages. What made you focus on, like, make the focus of the website be the projects instead of user interaction? That's the thing. It's a real chicken and an egg problem. You say, people will come for the community, but if there's no community there, how do you get that community started? We felt, well, what other way can we benefit people in space? We knew from being at university that it was going to be very hard once we left to get a job. In Australia, if you want to do anything interesting in space, then you practically have to leave the country. We thought if we could feel that we could make it easier to transition from university to job or from industry job to another industry job, people would benefit from that as well. So we didn't want to create a parasitic way of uh, like harnessing the space industry. We also wanted to create a side channel which would help people. And that was why we added jobs. So to come back to the project aspect, that is truly the goal, to have the projects there that people can reuse and build on. Yeah, and actually, I can vouch for it. Uh, it worked for me. Um, I put our project up there with RIT Specs. He and, and a couple other members are collaborating on a little you know, piece of code, put it up there, and got a recommendation for a job, and they called me. So <laughs> That's so great to hear. Awesome. So yeah. a lot of the projects I've seen, um, obviously, a lot of them are about space and aerospace. There's a few things about aviation. There's a few things about robotics. And I noticed is that a lot of them are maybe something like a student is doing in their free time or just mm. like people are doing as side projects. Do you see STEM projects staying in that sort of spare time realm? Or do you see that maybe a, a company or um, a larger entity using STEM as a, an open source project platform? I think it's inevitable. The question is when or how long before that becomes the norm. Uh, we see it in software engineering and software development all the time. Uh, companies who open source the software they're working on actually attract many people to their projects by the nature of being publicly accessible online. Um, there's a minor difference between people who work on projects at companies and people who work on projects for a hobby. And I see that as just money. There's, there's money behind one and there's money not behind the other. Yet there's the same minds solving the same problems. Um, often if they're, they're both extremely passionate about it, one just has capital to work with. Um, so if you're, if you're a company and you're sharing a project, you're going to find the people at universities and in industry who are deeply passionate about this and go, oh, that was that project that I was working on at home and I wanted to solve, but I never really got around to it because I didn't have the time. That's so cool that you guys are making inroads. It's really great for me to see where it's gone. I had the initial idea too. You know, I'd really love to come work with you. So eventually companies are going to realize the benefits of open source. Uh, there are multitudes there. Are, like I said, from publicity to um, financial saving because people are contributing without you even paying them. Um, it's open source is going to spread into hardware and we know that we're trying to capitalize on that and actually enable it and make it a reality. For your site with the project feature, uh, it's it's really a great place to showcase something that you, you're working on currently or that you've finished uh, with a, f a few mm -hmm. tools to allow for people to collaborate. Do you see the role shifting from being just a showcase to being the platform that people you know use on a daily basis to organize and work on their project? This is another thing we've struggled with. It's like I said, we've been at this 20 months, so we've had a lot of experiments, a lot of failures as you get with experiments, but each one moved us closer to working out exactly the, 
the secret sauce that's needed to get traction with this. The problem we encountered with the projects was, like you said, they're either finished or like to do. People don't regularly update. And we looked around at other websites like Instructables, um, there's GrabCAD, and what we realized was people who made tutorials and put up projects on those websites were really doing a snapshot in time of their project. It would, if they worked on it on their desktop, the updates wouldn't reflect to the website. People wouldn't gain those uh, like critical changes that are evolution to the design, and you'd end up having a project that was two years out of date, and then the content on the site becomes stale. It was it was the same problem that you've alluded to being faced by these other much more well adopted software websites. Um, <clears throat> so hardware websites. So the way we worked out how to combat it, we had to think more about getting into the mindset of the engineer and how are they working and where are they working. After speaking to many of our users, we found that they store their files in Google Drive, Dropbox, uh, OneDrive, you know, any cloud storage provider. And they add their friend to the project and then both of them work on it together and when person A updates their files, person B has them synced when they go home and straight away. So... It's the natural way to work. It just makes sense. And the problem with uh, trying to tap into that workflow is if you take the files and put them on a website, like I said, it's a snapshot in time. It doesn't continually update. You're taking the files away from their natural habitat. We need to keep them in that natural habitat if we want to uh, provide lasting value. So what's the natural thing to do? It's go and integrate with those service providers like Dropbox, like Google Drive. That way, engineers can work the way they always have. They don't change their workflow. But now we have access to those files in an ongoing basis. And that's exactly what we've done. So we have very exciting things behind the scenes. Um, we haven't been able to show them yet because they just simply don't work and we want to deliver a product people love. But I can tell you exactly the way this product is working in the behind the scenes and is going to be working in public soon for our users. So it's really easy. You connect your Google Drive, you and that's it, one click. And then as long as you choose public, your folder is publicly available. Anybody can see and download your files. And also, the reason that we provide ongoing value is we allow you to work in a team much easier because we've built a version control system like Git, but on top of these cloud providers. So let me delve into that a little more to explain for those who aren't really familiar with version control. <laughs> um, version control is at the heart of software development. That's what has caused the explosion of open source software. Um, it allows multiple people in a team to work together and track their changes to each file. So if you're working in a, a team of aerospace engineers, there's maybe five of you, and there's a project manager who goes, look, there's, there's so many people working here, I don't know how to track what each person is doing in terms of the project. Uh, and so that's where version control comes in. It says, oh, this person has made changes to this design incrementally. Um, here's the changes they've made. They've written a little log. And you can actually check, like visually inspect the differences between version A they had and version B. And this gives incredible ability for teams to work together because it minimizes the amount of communication needed um, it's all there in the repository, you can go and see the changes and it allows remote workers to work on a project together. And distributed work is the nature of modern work, you don't have to be in the same room together to work. And it's particularly good when you've got a sparse field like space engineering where there's people in Europe, people in America, people in Australia, it allows them all to work on the same project without having to physically be together. Uh, so yes, we built this version control system on top of the cloud providers and it allows you to one-click link your project and easily and automatically take snapshots of your changes of your project as it goes. And that's why we're going to keep people around for the long term to keep their projects on the site and to have a lasting value from what we're providing. Awesome. Engineers and the STEM types don't always have documentation yes. in, in a word. Um, it's, it's the yes. fun part of doing the work. The not so fun part is documenting <laughs> what you did, what choices you made at the time. Documentation gets better the more the person cares about the project. I think um, 
as soon as they want to share it with others, they realize that something needs to be said about it. Not necessarily everyone is good at writing documentation. We're personally taking what we've learned from the open source community and in software and transferring that to hardware. And occasionally these days I will come and open, across an open source software project that is documented terribly. And uh, what I need to do in that case is I go and read code. And reading code is a much slower way to extract the understanding of what's going on than a high-level overview. Yeah, documentation, I feel, is a community standard. People establish um, a bit of a culture around documentation. So even those who aren't necessarily so good at communicating generally see the way others do it and then have a bit of a template from which to work, which again is you know, core to this problem. So often when you start to write a report, you think, where do I begin? What do I say? But if you read others, then you get a bit of a prompting that can help you make better documentation. So we'll see improvements, I believe. Now you brought up uh, Instructables and other sites like that. Uh, and their big thing is uh, tutorials and how-tos, step-by-step guides on how to do things. Do you uh, think in the future with STEM, there's going to be step-by-step guides and it's going to be a learning place where someone can go on and learn how to do something? Or is it really going to be a showcase and kind of a collaborative platform? Yeah, personally, I would really like that to happen. Um, That was some of the most valuable content to me when I was learning how to develop software with the tutorials. Um, So, yes, I must stress I'm from a software background and my co-founders from the hardware background. So what we do is we both closely or deeply understand our fields and we're kind of meeting at the nexus. So often I'll relate to my experience in the software world and how I want to use that to improve the hardware engineering and aerospace and space world. So yeah, the, the tutorials were what gave me those initial steps to get started. Um, reading documentation these days is okay because I'm already experienced. But reading documentation as a, a beginner or a beginner in any field isn't very helpful to getting you started. Those guides explaining, this is why you should make this decision. This matters because of this. That's really the great way to learn. Um, and if we bring more people onto our team, I would actively like to start to have a, a content creator writing tutorials and guides about the content on the site. Um, I was doing some research the other day on SolidWorks tutorials, Katia tutorials, and it was quite light on in terms of what's available for graphics design tutorial, um, JavaScript tutorials. There is a myriad, there's just like 10 of those tutorials on any niche you want to find. But for these other 3D CAD modeling and printed circuit board design fields, it's so sparse. So I would love to become a, a hub for known good quality tutorials yes do you see, do you see a, a new sort of language and new culture coming about based on this platform that you're producing uh with regard to hardware development blending with software development is that is that really the goal of stem is to merge the um, two uh, mindsets or are you trying to meet a middle ground yeah i think you're right in saying there's a middle ground there Um, the trouble with that file locking and only one person can access it, I think it's unnecessary these days. It was probably necessary at a time when you were in a company and you had, again, a distributed team and and you were the sole sole designer of that file. Um, but these days people are are communicating better. Uh, there's, there's a better visibility to what's going on and... We, that was one of the things we wanted to overcome, that file-locking nature. Um, as I alluded to before with Dropbox or Google Drive, when you hit save, it's reflected over immediately to your team's Dropbox. And, and people are proving that this is a valid workflow all the time because of already using these cloud providers to do their engineering work. They don't end up getting conflicts on their design and <clears throat> they can't access the same file at one time. That just doesn't happen. They've already proved it works. Um, So I think that can be eliminated, which is great. I used a version control system once that had file locking and it was a nightmare. The big analog to STEM on the software side is GitHub. 
Uh, that uses the you know established technology of Git, uh, but hosted, and it's pretty much free for the majority of users. There's paid tiers for more features and whatnot. Uh, and you kind of alluded to this with the you know the open source movement, where GitHub, you know, the the base core is them storing your code for you, but they've put so many extra features and tools on top of that, where it's got documentation. You can make a website for your project and all these different things. Uh, do you see STEM as being the GitHub of hardware? Yeah, I would love that. Working out how to get there is tricky, but I believe that we can do it. And the reason we would be applicable to hardware is because well, our initial approach is to improve the ability to diff your hardware designs. We hear from engineers that it's really tricky to see what has changed between version 1 and version 2. So that's our initial way of being like really valuable specifically to engineering by providing diff tools for uh, uh, Autodesk uh, CAD models, uh, printed circuit board designs for Gerber files, um, those specific files to hardware. We're improving the design and, and developer experience for those hardware engineers. That would be the, the initial baby steps to becoming the GitHub for hardware. Are you going to look into uh, having tools on STEM that you know, people working on projects would then incorporate into their workflow because, you know, the GitHub issue tracker, that is a daily part of a lot of programmers' uh, workflows. Does, would STEM have something like that where, you know, a team starts up a project and they're working on it, you know, wherever they're located, but STEM is a platform and tool that every day they have to interact with it to work on the project to finish it? Most definitely, yes. Um, as a team, we use a Trello board, if you're familiar with Trello, for tracking our tasks. Uh, and when it came to developing this, I went, I want to give this to more people. Like, this is so great. It's such an efficient way of tracking tasks. So we've, we've built that into our new version that's going to be released. And you said issues as well. Yes, we have issues just as GitHub does. Um, and you can track your tasks against your issues and see how they're progressing. Oh, it's under review. Okay, it's moved to completion. Good, that's ticked off. Yeah, that's a crucial part of a, a developer workflow. Uh, that's where companies like Atlassian have been hugely successful in standardizing the best workflows for software engineers. They have their issue tracker with Jira. They have their code with Bitbucket. They have their communication with HipChat. They have the suite of tools which any software developer needs to work in a team. I don't think the, there is such a strong prescription for aerospace or hardware engineers um, and they've kind of been cobbling together different tools to make it work for them. We want to make that prescription for hardware engineers as to this is how you develop in hardware as a team. So yes, uh, project files and source through the interface which is up online today, um, issue tracking and threads in our closed beta and task tracking with like Trello boards um, in there as well. What are some of the most memorable ones you've seen? The, the craziest ones, the coolest ones, the ones that impressed you or just blew your mind? That's, that's a hard call. I think my personal favorites lie in the CubeSat field just because the potential for them is so enormous. Um, this There's a lot of startups these days such as um, Planet Labs, Spire, Astronus, who are redesigning uh, the CubeSats to create a constellation which can bring internet to you know areas like parts of Africa where they don't have infrastructure. Um, to me, the potential impact of that technology is what excites me. Uh, does STEM have any plans to incorporate uh, maybe like graphing and just general data visualization? Or, or, yeah, or data about your project, like Meta. It's a bit early, yes. You Once you get a better community, then you really start to work out which ones are the most valuable to the community because they receive the most interaction. Once you've got a lot of it, it's cool to slice it and dice it in different ways and see what you haven't noticed yet. Um, yeah, we have some data. I can, let's, we can even nut it out right now. Uh, the data we have available to us are the revisions that each people make and then those commit messages that they associate with uh, so that we can tell the frequency with which people are committing, um, the 
like responsibility of each person in the project, how much they've contributed towards the design. Um, so that's kind of what we have to work with. If you can think of interesting ways to transform contributions of people into some meaningful insight, that'd be good. We could, we can, I'm sure, give you some data to work with. Yeah, you the know, uh, one big feature on GitHub is that on your uh, user page, they have a Git activity kind of tracker for the year, and that tracks all the commits you make on your projects or other people's projects. Uh, do you see something like that coming to STEM? And do you see individuals interacting with individuals outside of the project areas? Uh, with respect to the uh, activity tracker, sure. I think that's a really great uh, gamification technique. People like to have known the great work they're doing. So, yeah, we have the ability to incorporate it. We've got the data there. Um, now it just takes time to implement. And I think that's a great way to let people share what they're doing. And then, yeah, the goal is to have people interacting outside one-on-one -on -one or, or through the site again, creating a project together. But to just facilitate the connections between people with specific knowledge and specific interests such that they can both tackle their shared problem the best. They couldn't do it before because they didn't know about each other, but now they've all found each other and they can do it and hopefully succeed. Are you still uh, exploring new things to add to STEM or do you have sort of a finalized roadmap at this point? Like if, uh, would listeners to SpecsCast be able to come and suggest new features or are you kind of like frozen in time right now working out the kinks? Nope, we would absolutely love SpecsCast listeners to give us their feedback and tell us oh, this is crucial to me. If I had this, it would make my life so much easier. That's what we want to hear because we're designing it for you. You and every engineer is our target user, so we want to make it the best experience for them. We're just going and, and trying to pick the most low-hanging fruit and the most valuable uh, ones at the moment. We only have a limited amount of time as, as two developers, so we do our best to... Yeah, pick what we hear most commonly from people. Now, do you see STEM kind of supplanting LinkedIn, especially for STEM majors? Because you guys have a, a jobs page where people can uh, apply with those projects. Uh, and, you know, everyone, pretty much everyone has LinkedIn, but not everyone uses the LinkedIn. <laughs> Recruiters do. You don't necessarily. <laughs> Are you going to focus on that job aspect a little bit more or is that more, again, you kind of said as an onboarding uh, method? I, in the short term, would like to drop the jobs aspect, probably to some people's dismay. Um, but really the nature of user who comes for jobs versus the nature of user who comes for projects is very different. One's here for a short time, um, they're not looking to collaborate and work, and one's here for the long term. However, as the Venn diagram goes, there is an overlap between the two of them and people who come for jobs also go, oh, this community is awesome. This can provide me so much value as an engineer. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Is it, is it working positively? Is it drawing in the right people? Are they converting to be the person we really want them to be? Um, and that's, the other thing is it's also is this huge overhead for us as a team of two <clears throat> to manage the acquisition of companies to hire through us and then to facilitate the connections of the people who get um, interview requests back to the companies. So just in terms of time, it's a big job. Is it just like you bit off too much you could chew with the, the jobs thing, or is it really grounded in the audience that it brings? Uh, I think you're right when you say bit off a bit more than you could chew. Yeah. Um, we could be a little less in-house with our jobs approach and just link off to the third-party website. Um, however, it's like, it's a question of what do you want your community to be about? And we use the jobs to gain content initially and users and be heard. Uh, we of course want to get people jobs, but we're not necessarily want to be solely about it in future. So but it's good to know that, that you're caring about, you know, the culture, uh, of STEM and, um, how you want it to grow in the future. Yeah. Now, uh, STEM has organization support where you can create projects under an organization. What do we you have? Rex <laughs> has an organization on STEM. Uh, do you see, or what do you see as the kind of optimal size of a project team? Uh, what is like the yeah. upper limit? Because, you know, 
our team is 40-ish people, 40 to 50. Uh, but, you know, we just were interviewing a Lockheed Martin uh, employee, and they have a team of several thousand. So I'm not saying, you know, Lockheed Martin is going to use STEM for their project, <laughs> but there are t- projects that have mm. hundreds of contributors, and there's projects that have two contributors. Would STEM support yeah. that range, or do you kind of have a, a target uh, size? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think when you go into the nature of work in the project, you might find that there are three to four people working on one module. And so although there's 50 people on the team, in reality only three to four is is what's working on this one piece at one time. Um, I think that's more like a project management question. Technically, we can support this number of users, but uh, is it going to work in a project workflow for them at a thousand size? No. But I think you could still make our tool work for a team of 50 where only a handful work on each piece at the same time. Yeah. Um, but like we haven't de- dealt with that kind of load before. We've generally dealt with teams of one to three and it's worked for them. So I'd be excited to see if it scales, but I can't say just yet. I think it will. Major unfun things are what kill so many DIY projects and so many, you know, spare time things is you do it well, it's fun. And then you're really into it. And then you get to a part where it's like, well, there's this bug and I can't figure it out and I'm working on it and eh. and then it dies and gets stale and you never update it. But maybe that's the point at which you give up, but because it was public, somebody else comes along and goes, oh, I know how to go forward from here and then they carry on. The beauty of open source, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, with you know GitHub, you can start a programming project and then someone years down the line can fork it and restart it. Like I just forked mm. someone project from three years ago and rewrote it and did unit testing for it uh, and so I'm sure they never expected anyone else to see what they did on a weekend uh, but it was there and it was easy to access and it was a good starting off point for me yeah it's really exciting mm. that that step is trying to bring that to the, the world of hardware CAD design and and um, space ultimately right yeah yeah exactly um, I can vouch and say exactly the same thing. I've <clears throat> been trying to deal with our infrastructure and uh, I found a guy in the same country in Australia in a different state in Adelaide, another city, um, and he just has saved me so much time because of the work he's done with his project. Um, it's, trying to, it's essentially coordinating multiple servers to all connect to each other and communicate. If one goes down, it brings up others. This was just such a daunting task, but because he shared his work, like it's just made my life so much easier. And yeah, I forked it and changed it for my needs. Like that is just such an enabling feature of open source to me. I want to bring that to more people with respect to hardware and, and be able to have people just make the same advances in engineering design. That's what's really exciting. And, and coupled with CubeSats or, or some starting ground that there's already a, a wealth of knowledge and kind of, you know, a template almost. Mm. Uh, to, to build up. Um, one of the things I wanted to, to talk about, I guess, a little bit was of space, access to space. We're, we're a space community, and if we're working on projects and communicating and, um, you know, collectively as a, the space community getting smarter and, you know, with the, the barriers coming down in, in cost and knowledge, you know, the hobbyists out here are going to be sending things to space. Um, what does that, what does that mean for the community? Like, I'm really excited to see all the new ideas and around and <laughs> finding out through play. So, yeah, well, as you said, that lowered barrier to entry and lowered cost is what's enabling so many younger people like us to get into the field. Um, like just last year alone, there was $200 million invested in space ventures over in Silicon Valley. Um, I think there was like $6 billion total investment, but like $200 million that went to space. That sounds a bit like the American government's budget and the NASA budget. <laughs> it's really awesome to see more private investment in space where, you know, you looked at the early 2000s and there was a lot of commercial activity of putting in like those low, low earth orbit uh, communication satellites 
Iridium being pretty much the only one that survived that. Uh, and then we went back to, you know, just your normal communication satellites and your military satellites. But now with CubeSats exploding uh, planetary resources, uh, OneWeb or SpaceX's uh, CompSats, it looks like there's going to be a big influx of money for not only satellites, but also launchers and services all related to space that kind of, you know, detaches from the government's, you know, budgets where they're not reliant on, on government funding anymore. Exactly. Yeah. And that gives you a lot of competitive power. If you're not relying on those strict government budgets that you must justify, um, you can be a bit more maverick and, and be more of a risk taker and say, this is how we're going to allocate our capital. And we think this is the best way. Yeah. It gives a lot more flexibility. Yeah. And I think companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, although they're today solving a very different problem to many of the other space startups, they're giving such great coverage and, and bringing it back into the home, just like the space race and, and the innovations of the 60s used to do. It's getting people inspired again about space and, and bringing those with money's attention to the field and, and at least the opportunities, even if uh, off-earth mining is, is such a faraway concept. People have, with dollars have got dollars in their eyes for thinking, oh, this could be good. This could be the next big industry. Is this going to be inevitable within the next 100 years? Yes. When is the time and how do we get there and how do I be part of that? So, yeah, bringing exposure to the industry for these big companies is, is really great, I think. Is your team open sourcing the work that they're doing? We're not doing anything competitive. Yeah, no, you're mm. not doing anything patented. We're not trying to compete. Uh, CubeSats uh, are designed yeah. to be educational experiences for students. So it's about mm. going through the process. It's about doing the work, gaining the experience, and to you know start a business and sell CubeSats. So uh, it, it benefits uh, us to give where we can, where it's you know it's nicely packaged. That's pro- that's probably the only barrier is nicely packaging things. Yeah. See that even just that idea of the ultimate high altitude balloon kit. That would be so great if you could just go to the ultimate high altitude balloon kit website and download it. And it has this great, you know, pressure sensor and, and ease of full filling uh, 3D printed, ready to go model. And then you also have some other components. Like if that became a standard platform, which everyone could just use and build upon and then contribute back to, that, that would just be so great for, and so enabling for other teams around the world. Um, and that's inevitable. I think I believe that people will do that, and if for every niche. Yeah, I, I see. You know, more complete subsystems becoming more available. Yeah. One thing that's great with the CubeSat standard is there's commercial off-the-shelf boards. You can so buy you, a control board. You can buy a communications board. Just like from the store, if you, if you have ten thousand dollars. Yeah. But you can buy it. You don't have to design it yourself. Yeah, and so that dramatically lowers the amount of engineering you have to do and work that you have to put in. Uh, a friend mm. of Spec actually sent us his power board free time, and that is, I believe, public domain. And so he uh, worked on it at RIT, and then when he graduated, worked on his free time developing this board. Uh, and that's actually flying on three satellites. Yeah. So that mm. is a very efficient, uh, going-to-be-flight-proven design, and I believe that's on GitHub, open to anyone to look at and use and the one thing that really, you know, stands out about that is that he put a ton of time in the documentation where it's yes. like, I'm not just doing the work for this, a solution to my problem. I want to demonstrate my thought process. I want to demonstrate my design choices so that someone can look at it. They can use the part if they would like, but they can also, you know, make their own version. Uh, and that mm. is you know, using, using the tools he used. That's a, a ton of work additionally on top of, you know, just making it functional in the first place. Yeah, what's what's great to me is I can see a clear path forward to making this even more accessible. So, Phil, you said there was a board which you could buy for $10,000, which is an off-the-shelf component. Um, I assume that's the design for that is still not open source. Is that true? I don't believe so. It's sold by CubeSat Shop or ClydeSpace. Pumpkin, Pumpkin and ClydeSpace Pumpkin. are the two major uh, CubeSat part suppliers. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that, that would be proprietary. Cool. So, and and then you've got the competitive board, which is already K U B O S. 
Um, and that is available to any uni student. And then the next question is, well, I don't have $10,000, but I have a working board design. How do I get it printed? And then there's another service provider called Open Source Hardware Park. And what you do is you send your design off to them and they actually do a board layout of like many different people's designs all in one run. And then they slice them up at the end, uh, which saves costs massively and allows you to do a print run. And so I can see the opportunity for take a design, send it to the, the mass manufacturing, um, then like test it out yourself and then contribute design back. It's, it's this snowball effect and, and all the pieces of the puzzle are there. There just needs to be an off-the-shelf way of standardizing them and combining them such that people can uh, yeah, just build it themselves. It's very exciting. The brain power for people to you know, think of more creative or more challenging problems to solve and you don't have to spend all this time and all this energy solving the power board you can spend it on you know the space debris cleaner upper cubesat with this novel <laughs> new grabbing mechanism and you don't have to worry about the uh, the problems that have already been solved my opinion is that there's so much information that's kind of locked away in these white papers where you know once yeah. a mission flies there's a 50 60 page uh, document and that goes you know in pretty depth uh, in depth on each each subsystem, the choices they made, the final like actual design and their solutions to all these problems, but that's not always an accessible uh, method of getting that information, right? Uh, sometimes they're locked away uh, behind libraries and that kind of thing. Sometimes they're written in ways that, you know, unless you're deeply involved in the industry, you just won't understand. So. Yeah, so, you know, having a, a searchable platform that lets you know, each specific part that that mission addresses be, you know, fully fleshed out, have its own space would probably be, you know, really ideal. Yeah, the other thing I tell people is that these problems are, are not a technical challenge. They're just a time challenge. Like if you two sat down and dedicated your minds to solving one of these problems, you could do it. It's just that you don't have the time to allocate and uh and that's the biggest thing if we can save people time then they can just use, reuse other people's work and then you can solve much bigger problems or at least the next step in the problem it's not a technical or intellectual property hurdle it's just a time hurdle the future is bright yeah so bright so bright um have you guys come across the startup called cubos CubeOS or CubeOS. Uh, they're making the operating system for CubeSats. Um, they are recently funded. I think they've been in a couple of years now. Uh, they're really cool guys. Uh, lots of in-depth experience in the space industry. And they realized with the proliferation of small satellites heading into space, having a unified operating system so that you could run the software you write on any of these platforms would be essential. And they're doing very cool things for space at the moment. Um, basically, they, they make the communication between your subsystems just come down to a software API. So you no longer need to develop against a specific piece of hardware. You just develop against their operating system and then it will run seamlessly between any of your subsystems. That's the ideal. I'm sure there's kinks along the way, but they're going to get there. Yeah, so uh, one of our uh, alumni and really cool. fellow SpexCast host, August, was actually at Small uh, Satellite yes. Conference 2016, and he was at a bunch of different talks, and one of the very interesting uh, proposals was Linux in space, where mm. for so long it's been micro microcontrollers, very limited uh, processing or real-time operating systems, uh, but we've gone to a point where we have enough power and processing uh, capability to run Linux, uh, and QoS seems to be something kind of similar. Um, with their mission proposal, which is really interesting, is to have you know Linux running on a Raspberry Pi like processor, and have them just be Linux servers. And so you're you're talking to your radio transceiver, uh, and that's just kind of your modem, and that lets you talk to any other satellite in range or the ground. And so it's, you know, you have a server in the sky and it's talking to a server on the ground uh, and that kind of simplifies a lot of different things. And that's really, really different, uh, cool and interesting because, you know, space is cutting edge and for all different areas. 
Uh, and there's a lot of challenges in the programming kind of realm for space, but in hardware, it's, it's historically been lagging behind. And to see new, the new capabilities of hardware actually being used in space is really exciting uh, and bringing more of the, the new paradigms of programming and hardware development into space applications. Yeah, Linux in space, that's such a cool idea. Just the thought of like servers flying around the earth. It's going to be very cool. Oh, and you were also interested in the Delta V Space Hub, which is a project happening here in Sydney. Um, it's, yeah, so there's a, it's a, basically an industry body that is looking to develop the space industry in Australia. They realized that, like I said before, if anyone wants to do any real space work, they need to leave the country. Um, however, this is causing in Australia a brain drain. The best minds, as soon as they finish in the education system, leave. And it means like there is so little hope for getting any kind of industry started when all the best just disappear straight away. Uh, so they wanted to get a dollar for dollar matching from our government uh, to start a, a fund to back space startups. And I believe they've been successful in raising uh, $1 million to start the startup uh, accelerator, and that's been matched dollar for dollar, so another million from the government. And that's helping uh, young companies such as CubeRider, who are doing a shared launch provider service, um, as well as other small startups such as Obelisk, who are designing small sat hardware, uh, so their interesting proposal is they develop a uh, small set of CubeSat designs and then distribute them to high school and university students. And then they partner with the ride-sharing service CubeRider so the people who are actively developing the hardware, the cream of the crop, get to pair with the launch provider and then launch into space. And as you said, NASA is doing this for you guys, but we don't have an Australian NASA, so it's coming down to private industry. Um, and it's being developed by people who are like 25, 26 years old as well. Does Delta V hope to bring launches to, to Australia or more develop hardware and then move to a more equatorial uh, centered launch site and then put things into space from another location? They would like to do launches here. I think it would be cheaper than, for them to do so. But I know there are some government regulations which are posing problems, but I think they're pretty minor. Um, however, like if you watch videos of the CEO of Rocket Lab, the company based in New Zealand, so Peter Beck, he talks about how um, New Zealand just makes complete sense for launching. It's quite funny that the guy who founded the company was actually from New Zealand. I mean, it would seem like someone else might venture from the other part of the world to come from New Zealand to build this rocket. He happened to already grow up and be there. Um, so to give you a bit of an idea about New Zealand, it's predominantly um, beautiful, natural land and a whole lot of sheep. And so to be launching a, a carbon fiber-based rocket or launch provider is just so incredible. Um, they're also a very pragmatic country which is why this so it's so good for launching rockets there. Um, the government isn't like, you can't do that, you can't innovate. <laughs> um, so, And I believe it's also, um, I'm not quite sure about the latitude, but I, I believe it's, it's good for launches. They have a low wind, um, generally low wind in the area they're in, so it's, it's good for launching. Um, yeah. So I think, I think maybe early on they'll, they'll probably capitalize on other industries which are slightly ahead, such as the New Zealand industry, but ultimately they'll probably want to do something in Australia. Excellent. And, and Delta V has a project on STEM, uh, which is why I wanted to talk about it today. Um, do you think that Delta V is going to start using STEM more often? <laughs> um, maybe, yes. More, more the companies that are part of the ecosystem. Delta V itself is kind of like the coordinator. They probably wouldn't have any files or designs to put up, but they could be an organization which gets linked and affiliated to these other companies. And then when people discover those companies, then they'll say, oh, there's an organization here called Delta V. Let me see what they're about. And probably just part of building out the ecosystem there. Yeah, the from the community side and getting people to interact and uh, build it from that, that end of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, 
at the small sat conference when Shawell talked about small sats, you know, from CubeSat, NanoSats, all the way up to 100 kilograms. Uh, and she expects there to be, you know, at least 4,000 satellites launched by then and a potential for even more if, you know, things really work out right. And so looking at all the universities working on CubeSats and all of the companies working to give them launches, it really is exciting. And, you know, one of the founding principles of CubeSats is to give, you know, students hands-on experience. And so with more and more of them going up, more and more groups at more different universities, private schools, even just, you know, hobbyists who could get involved. That's really, really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Just once again, the barrier to entry, just getting so much lower and giving the people with the smart mind the opportunities to literally put something in space. Thank you, Jackson. You're the co-founder and CEO at STEM. That's S-T-E-M-N.com. It's been an amazing conversation. Thanks a lot for chatting with us. This has been super fun. Likewise. I'm so glad you gave me a platform to talk about what we're doing. And so thank you. Um, I can definitely sort out something for uh, Specs listeners in terms of like giving you free repositories when we launch. Um, we want to get as many people trying us out. So yeah, going to give you the special treatment. Awesome. awesome. Thank you so thank much. You. And where can uh, people yeah. find STEM uh, besides you know going directly to your website? How, they, how can they get in touch with you? Um, well, look, feel free to email me personally. I answer and read every email. So my email address is jackson at stem.com. Um, yeah, just email me if you have any questions. Always happy to chat to people and work out exactly what you need so we can design our website to serve you and, and make the best tool to help you work. Well, look, I'm so excited to talk to you again in a couple of months when we launch this awesome killer project, which is going to be the next big thing. So. I look forward to it. All right, guys. See ya. Bye. And that was Jackson Delahunt, CEO and co-founder of STEM.com. That's S-T-E-M-N.com. Just a full disclosure, this was not done as any sort of advertisement or anything like that. We just really liked the website and wanted to share. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpecsCast. If you want to get in contact with the show, you can email us at specscast, that's S-P-E-X-C-A-S-T, at gmail.com. We've heard from a few of our listeners just recently, and it's sparked some great conversation, and um, we really appreciate it. It's really fun to chat with the people that actually listen to us talk about space. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at R-I-T-Specs. Like our page on Facebook, that's also R-I-T-Specs. And check out our brand new website built by our very own Specs members at spex.rit.edu. Our new theme music was made by Nelson Scott. You can check out more of his stuff at soundcloud.com slash the Nelson Scott. Once again, thanks for listening to SpecsCast, and we'll see you next time.